Welcome to the Self Made Theory, the podcast that's all about innovating, overcoming, and prospering. We interview founders, entrepreneurs, innovators, CEOs, and other exciting people about their amazing business journey. Over to your host, Ben Campbell, for this week's episode. Hey, it's been here. You know how sometimes you just meet someone whose story is so fascinating that you just have to hear more? Well, this week on The Self-Made Theory, that person is Mark Rowe. Mark has reinvented himself as an entrepreneur multiple times. Originally, he started out in the printing industry and he sold that business and semi-retired to an island in Fiji. Well, isn't that everybody's dream? Only to discover that reliable deliveries to the island he was on was non-existent. So, like all good entrepreneurs would, he started a ferry shipping service, which became the biggest in Fiji. Fast forward, and he's now back in Australia, and he's now making realistic body parts so that surgeons can learn their skills without practicing on real bodies. And Mark didn't know anything about healthcare before he started. This episode is just plain fascinating. You'll learn a lot about how the entrepreneurial mindset works. My name is Ben Campbell, and this is The Self-Made Theory. Mark, welcome to The Self-Made Theory. Thank you very much, Ben. It's my pleasure being here. Let's start with your elevator pitch on who is FuseTech. Oh my God, you got me under pressure now. (laughs) Well, FuseTech is an advanced manufacturing company servicing the medical device sector or the healthcare sector. We manufacture human anatomy to upskill surgeons. We're addressing the problem of how do surgeons train. So you make body parts. Yeah, effectively we make human body parts. And they're pretty realistic from what I hear. Uh, Yeah, well, they have to be realistic, mate, to uh, capture the interest of the market. So I want to come back to that because what's really interesting is how realistic they actually are and the amazing value that they provide to surgeons. So we're going to come back to that. But I'm interested in your background because you don't have a background in medical technology. No, that's certainly true. So Uh, if you cast your mind way back, your career started where? Well, Chris started uh, doing an apprenticeship back in the uh, the mid-80s, a four-year apprenticeship and four years of night school doing graphic art and design. You know, I ended up uh, loving both of those uh, trade, but decided I wasn't a very good artist, so I, I stuck with the printing at the time. That's when manufacturing was in vogue. Yeah. And I commenced my first company when I was 27. So that's your own startup? Yeah, that was my first startup when I was 27. Uh, that was back in 1991, so that's showing my age now. And that was a great success, but, you know, very hard, very hard work. A lot of long hours at the first seven years. I think I had uh, Christmas Day off every year. That was it. So, really? Uh, wow. It was successful. And, uh, you know, of course, when you're going through rapid growth, you have cash flow problems. And it took seven years to find a balance where we we plateaued out and uh, the company got into control and we got you know better systems and procedures. So I look at my first business as uh, my apprenticeship in so business second, management. Your second apprenticeship. So one, one year oh, yeah, you yeah. had an apprenticeship as a, uh, yeah. in the graphic design piece and then an apprenticeship in how to start a business. Yeah, yeah. Apprenticeship as a tradesman and apprenticeship as a businessman. So basically I went through the school of hard knocks. Yeah. And what did you learn through that seven years of, of starting your first business? I, I think the first lesson I learned that just because you're a good tradesman doesn't make you a good businessman. 100%. And, uh, and that's irrespective of whether you're a good salesperson, doesn't mean you're a good sales manager. Yeah. Just because you're a good technologist doesn't make you a CEO of a technology company. Yeah, exactly right. I remember uh, after several years of being in business, you know, the business was just growing too quickly. And uh, I went and seen my bank manager at the time and said, mate, you know, this business is outgrowing me. You know, I don't know if I can lead it going forward. I need help here. And he, he came back to me two, three days later and said, Mark, I've booked this into a business management course. Let's do it together. Wow. So, you know, they were the days you had bank managers and that yeah, was okay. fantastic. Yeah. I probably never looked back from that point, actually. It was a fairly pivotal moment in my career, I think. And so what would you do differently if you had that time again? Would you study business earlier on in your cycle? Would you get some mentors like your bank manager on board 
sooner? Yeah, look, that's an interesting question. I uh, I actually wanted to go through the university system and uh, the wisdom was my father at the time said to me, Mark, they're running out of jobs. You've got to go get one quickly. <laughs> so <laughs> I still laugh to this day. So, um, you know, just because you, you finish with your schooling doesn't mean to say you have to finish with your learning and your 100%. education. Yeah, absolutely. So. I'm quite self-disciplined that way. You know, for the last couple of decades, I would buy a business management book every month, an autobiography of some description and and read it. And uh, I love it. I just absorb that information. And they say in life, you're a total sum of your life's experience. So, uh, you know, all those lessons from the School of Hard Knocks and all those readings, you know, if you retain that knowledge, you can become a better manager or a better leader. So, um, yeah, all good experiences. One of my greatest sayings, uh, one that I refer to a lot, in fact, it's even on my website, uh, it's from Harry Truman, who said that uh, not all readers are leaders, yep. but all leaders are readers. Oh, that, that is a wonderful saying, isn't it? And I agree with that wholeheartedly, yeah. And so after the seven years, you sold the business? Oh, not immediately. I sold it after 11 years. It was uh, about 11 and a half, mid-2003. Mm-hmm. I sold it for a number of reasons. Uh, manufacturing was going out of vogue. We had some health issues in the family. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I really don't want to be stuck doing this for the rest of my life. I really need to reinvent myself. So um, I decided to take a year off of work and uh, have a look and, you know, just relax a little bit. I was fortunate enough to be in a financial position where I could do that. Yeah. So I took a year out and ended up on a remote island in the South Pacific. And I thought, right, I'll uh, tick something off my things-to-do list and I decided to build my own house. So hang on. So this is not a holiday. This is I'm going to Robinson Crusoe myself out in a, on an island somewhere. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Pretty much I loved it, mate. It um, was a fantastic time in my life. And I was quite passionate about woodwork. So I thought, right, I'll just build a big log cabin and took a year out. To- and so did you buy a block of land there? or? Yeah, I bought a few acres of beachfront property. You know, truly it was gorgeous. And I uh, bought two books on uh, how to build a house. <laughs> and Because uh, I, I imagine there wasn't a lot of internet on this remote island. No, no, no there was pretty much nothing. <laughs> you know, you, you didn't even have a delicatessen as such. So um, it was quite challenging. You know, I remember when I first got there, I, I went and asked one of the uh, locals, you know, where do we buy meat? And they said, well, we get it from the funerals. And I was just dumbfounded. I didn't really know what that meant at the time. So, uh, you know, it was a whole cultural experience for me. What, so what did that mean? What, what did they mean? Well, sorry, I should, probably should have explained that better. So part of the culture in Fiji is, uh, sorry, it was in Fiji, the, the island. On the outer islands, what happens if somebody passes away, they have a, a you know, a week-long ceremony and feast and everybody island on the island will pitch in and work and uh, get the big ceremony happening. And the harder you work, then they actually will sacrifice a few sheep and cows and they'll right. cut you off a leg of lamb and you take that home. So that's your rations for, you know, a for week's your contribution. For yeah. your contribution, yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, it was a great cultural experience and I absolutely treasure it. And I, I spent several years there in the end. I decided originally I was just going to allocate one year and I was there for the best part of 10 years. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> yeah. Wow. Talk to me about deliveries onto the island and seeing a problem that you decided you needed to do something about. Yeah, well, when uh, when I decided to build the house, then we had to get you know the raw materials, the wood, the bricks, etc. And um, there was a, a local ferry that used to come to the island. It was supposed to you know turn up once a week, and of course it would go for three months periods, and you wouldn't see the ferry. So I thought, okay, I need to start a little ferry business here and buy my own ferry. So. I did that, and it was a great success. I ended up owning the biggest shipping company in Fiji. So uh, I think I had 11 regional offices, three ships, probably a fleet of 20 or 30 trucks in the end and a couple of hundred staff. And, uh, you know, it really was going gangbusters over there, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So what was happening in the industry at that particular point in time? Were the ferry operators just individuals doing their thing? Yeah, they were individual companies. There was quite a few of them around on the route that we serviced, which was Suva, Savasavi, Trivuni. There were two main ships on that route. but um, And I spoke to the owners of those companies before I started my business and they had the philosophy where, you know, we don't do maintenance on our ships. We only fix them when they break down. And, of course, they were always broken Breaking down. down. <laughs> so, so I thought, you know, there's just got to be a better way to run a shipping uh, service in Fiji. And, I, and like every business, I did my research. 
I spoke to a lot of people, you know, including uh, the general public that um, people would have a farm and they said, we don't grow, grow crops because we can't get our crop to the market. Because, you know, if, if you, you know, harvest a coin, corn. Can't, it can't sit there for two months. Yeah, it can't yeah. sit there for two months waiting for a ship at rots. So uh, I thought, you know, there's a real need here for a reliable shipping service. And if we build a reliable service, then, you know, the, the, the farmers will start growing cop, crops, the, um, the fishermen will start fishing. And what happened was uh, we built that reliable shipping service. And, uh, you know, if my ships were 15 minutes late, I wanted to know why. And we were really professional and, you know, I was very proud of the work we were doing over there. But what happened, everything started booming, you know, tourism boomed and uh, hotels were popping up and, uh, and you know, we were in great favour with the government because a couple of our policies were along the lines of any sick people will transport for free from the Alida Islands to the mainland. Okay. Um, or so, how did, so how did that policy come about? I mean, what a fantastic... Uh, well, well, it was just a good social service to do. You know, your ships were going anyway. It doesn't matter if we put uh, a patient on there. The terms and conditions, though, they always had to travel with a nurse or a doctor. Yeah. And, uh, and we'd give them a free cabin. All educational material we transported for free. So, uh, you know, we got in... Uh, we were held in high regards with the, with the local government to the point where, um, you know, they wanted to, to expand rapidly and service a whole 320 islands of Fiji and they even offered to uh, financially support us as a company. Effectively, we were rapidly becoming the, the Qantas of Fiji. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it was a great fun business. I really loved it over there. So you're not in Fiji now. You're back in Australia. How did that come about? Well, you know, we faced a lot of adversity over there. When, when I first started there, um, you know, I was in the newspapers every day named the Great White Shark. You know, we were coming <laughs> over to steal all their work. Yeah. And in, in the early years, there was a lot of corruption and uh, we had all, all sorts of technical problems. The maritime industry was very embryonic, you know, didn't have a lot of rules and laws and regulations. So we had a lot of adversity and uh, we overcome all of them. You know, they were just hurdles. And I look back in my 11 years apprenticeship as a business manager, you know, served me greatly over there. And, you know, I was a self-confident man that felt like I could take on any challenge. So but there was one hurdle that uh, cropped up and uh, was just a little bit too big an obstacle for me. So I uh, had to pack up my bags and come home. And that was when my wife decided to uh, leave me. So it was uh, personal in nature, but it's probably the first thing in my life that actually beat me. That It really uh, had a great emotional impact on me. And it came to, as a shock to me and you know, it did beat me. So uh, I, I, you know, no shame in admitting I was a beaten man for a couple of years. Uh, so I had to disassemble the company. I scrapped it, sold it off as in bits, so the ships are all still running. So why not sell it off as a going concern? Just too much money. Yeah. It was a big company. So Yeah. Uh, and finding someone with that amount of money to buy it. Yeah. 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 So at the time, uh, you know, the board had already approved that we were going to list on the Fijian Stock Exchange and we we're halfway through that process. And we were raising capital to expand into uh, Tonga and Samoa and Papua New Guinea. Uh, we'd been over there and met, met the ministers and they all wanted ferry services. So, you know, the company was growing through rapid growth and, uh, you know, it started to get a fairly high net worth value, not high by Australian standards, but high by Fiji standards. So it was easy to sell it off in bits and pieces than it was as a whole. And that then enabled you to come back to Australia? Well, it did, you know, it was follow the wife and the children back to Australia, yeah. So yeah. Uh, that was my purpose for coming back here. But, you know, Adelaide's my home. I love it here, always have. Uh, also love my island in Fiji. It was just, you know, I look at it as, uh, look back at it as 10 years of semi-retirement. It was just wonderful. And I was in a fortunate position where, um, uh, even though we had a, a fairly significant company over there, I only actually worked one week a month. Oh. You know, so I spent three weeks on my island. Uh, one week every month I'd go into the capital city. The first two days I'd always talk to the managers, go on the ships, talk to the captains and the engineers, you know, assess if there's any problems or any need, talk to the customers. Uh, on the Wednesday we'd always have the board meeting. On the Thursday and Friday I would action any minutes from the board meeting. And see you next month, boys. You know, and um, wow, but, you know, I think it, that's isn't that everybody's dream, isn't that? Yeah. I, I imagine most CEOs at some point would love for their to be in that position. Yeah, I think um, 
you know, every business is different and and different stages within your business. The business I have now, it's very much a hands-on role at the moment uh, till I get it established. The shipping company in Fiji, the very first day, I just employed 26 people, bang, done. I went and bought a ship. Yeah, it wasn't quite that easy. I spent months planning it, writing policies and systems and and all that type of stuff and financing it all and finding investors. And so there was a lot of hard work done and, you know, it was full-time gig for probably six months. Then when we started the company, I worked full-time for probably three or four months. You can say the best part of a year I put into it. But from that point there, it was under self-management effectively. So I had uh, five line managers. So I had the head of finance, the head of sales, the head of logistics, et cetera. And they all answered to me personally, but basically I gave them autonomy to, to do their job. They all had their job descriptions. They had their budgets. If there's any, any problem, they just gave me a phone call. So I say I was at home on my island for three weeks of the, of the month, and I was, but I'd always get two or three phone calls a day. Yeah. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. So you disbanded the company, sold it off. Yep. Come back to Australia. Yep. Was there a plan? Look, I wasn't planning on coming back to Australia. I decided, right, I've got to take stock of my life again and reinvent myself. So I did and basically commenced FuseTech. Where did the idea for FuseTech come from? You know, when I was the CEO of that company, I was introduced to uh, additive manufacturing. and I. Uh, so what's additive manufacturing? Basically 3D printing. The whole idea is, you know, you, you get materials where it's metal or plastic and, you know, you build them on top of each other layer by layer rather than subtractive manufacturing where you start off with a big piece of steel like and you CNC turn it machine down. or yeah, whatever. CNC yep. machine. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I like this idea of additive manufacturing and 4.0 methodology. And I thought, right, this is something I can probably do. You know, it's, it's called 3D printing, but it's really got nothing to do with printing whatsoever. But I, I thought, well, I'd run printing companies before and... <laughs> And uh, and when I was in Fiji, I actually had an engineering company as well and a renewable energy company. So I quite liked engineering. So I thought, okay, this is probably something I can do. So I went at that stage, when I left the job, I uh, packed up my bags and went over to America and studied in America for probably the best part of two months, traveling around, ended up at... uh, And and doing what? Just looking at... Additive manufacturing yeah. facilities or? Yep, exactly. Right, okay. Yep, going from university, university, additive manufacturing facilities. So after a few months uh, traveling around uh, the USA, I ended up in Minnesota and it's kind of the epicenter of 3D printing there, a big sales office selling technology. Right. And I like what I've seen. I like the technology, but, you know, decided I'd bring it back to Australia. This technology was not available in Australia at the time, so we bought the first machine. Yeah. What were you going to do with it? Did you have a plan? Well, I didn't buy that machine straight off the right. bat. I decided I wanted to, but I yeah. didn't I didn't have a plan at all. And that was the problem right there and then. I looked at several business models and I just couldn't financially make sense of any of it. It just wasn't worth buying this technology. And, you know, we looked at not just business models, but different business sectors. We looked at servicing the defence sector, looked at servicing the aerospace sector, looked at servicing the medical sector. I decided against the first two as our core business model, mainly because no matter what we did, they were always going to become a bureau service and itself isn't a good business model. So what do you mean by explain? Uh, a bureau service that. basically means if you buy some technology and you service a defense sector, other people end up owning the IP and they outsource work to you and you manufacture yep. it for them. So they do they do the design, that, right? Yep. They come up with that yep. and they say, Can you Yep. effectively 3D print this for us. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, so, Mark. So I looked at that and the trouble is, you know, buying, I call it generic technology off the shelf, you're always going to have a competitor down the track. So I decided no matter what we do, we have to develop our own IP as a business model going forward. And then I was looking at the healthcare sector and I decided, you know, this is probably more of a global opportunity for us, the healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're doing defence, it's probably more SA-based. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, right, I'll, I'll I'll focus my attention on the uh, on the healthcare sector. Now I have to find a problem to solve. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds crazy, doesn't it? I know. It um, usually works the other way around, I, but I love the fact that you found the problem. I, I know. And, you know, I see problems every day and I see new business opportunities every day of the all, week. All great entrepreneurs do, mate. Right. Well, that's interesting. 100%. I didn't know that, so I learned something today. Thank you for that. 
Anyway, but on this occasion, I was actually in search of a problem and uh, I spent a year going to conferences, talking to medical professionals and academics and asking them what their needs were in the medical sector. And uh, one surgeon mentioned to me one day what he'd really like is a a patient-pacific model. And I asked him to explain that to me and he he said, you know, Mark, when somebody comes in and they've got, say, a heart problem, we'll do an MRI and we'd like to be able to give you that MRI and we want you to manufacture that person's Pacific heart. So they may have a blocked aorta or they may have a periocardial infusion. They have some pathology of the heart. And if you could manufacture that and we could hold it in our hand and we could uh, evaluate the pathology or the medical problem, then we could pre-plan the surgery better. And potentially, even if we could dissect it, that would be great. So effectively, we could rehearse before we actually do the living patient surgery. I thought, wow, okay, now that's something we could do, but what a terrible business model. <laughs> you know, once again, we're always making one-off products and really yeah. um, uh, from a financial point of view, you, you, you manufacture the product and, of course, every product you have to put a line, a lot of time and energy and effort into that nobody will want to pay for. And the question is, who's going to pay, right? Yeah, is the doctor, yeah, yeah, exactly. is the doctor going to pay? Yeah. Is the healthcare yeah. fund going to pay? Is, yeah. the, is the patient going to pay? Yep. I really like the fact that we could save a patient's life potentially, but I'll only be able to save one and then I'll be out of business. So, break. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I needed to find a better business model. But taking those words of... But I, uh, but I imagine the problem still existed because you know, if you're a surgeon, yes, you can theoretically understand all of the different problems with somebody's heart, Yes, but until you actually operate on one of them, yeah, you'll, well, you'll, ne- you'll never get that experience. You're, you're exactly right. And, of course, the longer I'm in this uh, sector, the more I learn about it. And, you know, a lot of the surgeons, they look at CTs and MRIs and they're basically getting a 2D field of vision and they have to you know, picture that in 3D somehow. And, uh, of course, the next problem they have is when they always do an operation, they open a patient up and there's, you know, something there that wasn't presenting itself, obviously, on the on the CT scan. So the request from the surgeon to make a patient-specific model actually was an embryo uh, in my mind as well. And I thought, you know, why do surgeons have to train? You know, is there a problem to solve there with surgical training? So I did look into that and I decided, right, there is a gap here and uh, we can fulfill that gap. But it's not just something necessarily going wrong with surgical training. Is The human anatomy is so complicated and complex and every single patient can present something slightly different. And you don't have the opportunity during your days at university or your residency at the hospital to actually perform a dissection or to rehearse on some of these complications. So we thought, right, this is an opportunity here where we can assist by making medical devices for surgeons to train on that are outside of the normal. You know, let's make... So hang on. So, so if I'm a surgeon in training yep. at university, yep. I assume I'm, I am doing some dissections and operations, but I'm not doing it. I'm doing it on a cadaver, aren't I? Yeah, well, you pretty much are. Even doing it on a cadaver is a bit of a luxury these days. It, you know, yeah. Firstly, it's a blessing that people donate their body to medical yeah. science. I want to put that out there straight away. And, and hopefully there's more of it because, you know, our young medical professionals do need to train. And even the experienced ones need to continually rehearse. So, uh, you know, donating your body to medical science is an absolute blessing and a godsend. So thank you for that. Uh, so uh, students in a university will do dissections, but there are problems associated with that. It's, uh, you know, the regulatory burdens, the potential of bacteria and viruses that live in yeah. cadavers. Once people are embalmed, embalmed, you have volatile gases. So there's occupational health and safety risk with cadavers. The next problem you find as well is if, um, you know, you want to practice removing a tumour posterior to the sphenoid bone, what is that? And, and, and you can't. And if you can't find, one. if you can't find a, yeah. You know, yeah. a person who's had that, mm. yeah, exactly. You can't order a cadaver with a particular pathology or disease. Yeah. Literally, you get what you're given. So, you know, if you want to practice doing sinus surgery or surgery on the nose, you might get a patient that has a perfectly normal nose. Well, you really want to have a, a complex anatomy so you can upskill. Yeah. So, hence, there's a fair gap there. So. The young uh, students or the residents of the hospitals, um, they can only train on what's been presented to them. 
Uh, of course, there's a lot of software around as well, which is great, but it really doesn't give you that haptic feedback or that, that's a name given when you uh, want to learn the resistance on a tool, for example, when you're cutting through human flesh, how hard do you push and, and all those type of things. So the software is really not giving you that and it also uh, is pretty limited in the emotional experience. You can imagine how traumatic it is actually when you're learning that you're dissecting human bodies. Mm. So you have to go through that emotional learning curve as well. And, you know, it's a lot to a lot to absorb and a lot to learn when you're a young medical professional. And we did see a gap in the surgical training. So we decided that, okay, what we want to do is manufacture products with complex anatomies and pathologies for surgeons to train on. So not just surgeons, we have medical students can train on them, residents can train on them, and surgeons can upskill or do, learn advanced surgical training on them. There's many levels and degrees of difficulty in surgery itself. Are you a busy executive with not enough time to work on your business and fit in physical exercise into your day? As a business coach and mentor, many of the executives I work with understand that their most precious resource is time. On top of running their business and the demands of life in general, the challenge for many is fitting exercise into their busy lives. Harvard Business Review indicates your mental firepower as an executive is directly linked to your physical regimen. Exercise brings improved concentration, sharper memory, faster learning, prolonged mental stamina, enhanced creativity and lower stress. And that doesn't include all the physical health benefits as well. In response to this, we've launched Self-Made Cycling, our business and executive coaching services, conducted not in the boardroom, but on the bike. It's a brilliant way to combine all the benefits of working on your business challenges while bringing you the physiological benefits of exercise. Years ago, a lot of business was conducted on the golf course. Today, it's time to handle your business on the handlebars. We cater for all levels of executives and cycling experience. Beginner, pro, entrepreneur, manager, CEO, weekly, fortnightly or monthly. We've got you covered. We've launched this service in January at the Tour Down Under in Adelaide, but can work with executives anywhere in the world using your smart trainer and platforms like Zwift. And don't forget to chat to your accountant. Did I hear someone say tax deduction? Visit our website, selfmadecycling.com.au or call 1300theory. Business and cycling, it doesn't get any better. So when we're talking products, you're talking about replica body parts and, and anatomy. Yeah, that is correct. You know, we decided that this really uh, is a business that has global implications in a very big sector. Um, in the healthcare sector uh, in the US alone is 18% of GDP before COVID. I couldn't even imagine, imagine what it is now. It is huge. I mean, I think the defense sector is only 3 or 4%. So, you know, it's basically five times the size of the defence sector. And the spending isn't going down. It's no, not going no, the exactly. opposite way. Exactly. So, mm. you know, it has significant global implications. And um, Okay, so, so you decided there was this gap. Yeah. Right? What, what did you do next? Well, I found the problem that we wanted to solve. I knew it was a big problem and I knew it was beyond my capability. Um, I have a belief system that says... Uh, I know I haven't got the ability to design a rocket ship to fly to the moon, but I can oversee a team of engineers that can. So I, I kind of had a belief in my own leadership ability. So I knew what I needed to do next was get a team around me, a team of people with the right attitude and with expertise. So I, I went around to the universities and I presented my idea to them and they basically said to me, Mark, it's too hard, forget it, go home. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so what, what sort of person are you to respond when you hear that <laughs> market's too hard? I actually uh, came back and went, great. <laughs> I thought the barriers to entry are too high. This is going to take my potential competitors out of the market. They won't even get started. <laughs> so I thought, this is wonderful. Now I have to find some people that are going to believe in my vision. And literally, instead of having a collaboration with the university, I'm going to have to um, you know, employ some people and develop this myself. So... Uh, I did that. So we employed a few people, you know, very smart people with degrees and PhDs and things like that. And uh, I set forth the task. This is what we want to do. Let's get cracking. So um, we went and bought that technology. 
uh, the stuff from Minnesota that yep, you've seen. Yep. yep. Bought the technology out of USA as our starting point. And that was a great starting point, by the way. And then we had to knuckle down and start, you know, developing our own software, developing materials, segmenting human anatomy, uh, try to get this technology up to a higher level. And I kind of look at that as um, Steve Jobs might not have invented the phone, but he certainly added value to it. So I started off with base technology and added a lot of value to it. And after about six months, we, we got our first rudimentary prototype. I took it around to uh, one of the university wet labs and they said, uh, you know, this is quite good, Mark. Um, and what part of the body was that? That was a human head at the time. That yep. was the first head that we'd made. Mm-hmm. And I took it around to the wet lab and they said, you know, it's, it's a good start, Mark. Uh, do you mind if we show a surgeon? And I said, yeah, that's, that's fine. And they said, leave it with me. And I didn't even get back to work and my phone rang and turn around and go back to the university. And uh, one surgeon uh, seen it and said, Mark, this is pretty good. Are you interested in a commission? And I said, yeah, I'd love one. So uh, we got a commission to... So explain a commission. One of the surgeons, uh, there is also a professor. Um, his name's uh, Peter John Wormel, the chairman of ENT, which is ear, nose and throat. He uh, commissioned us or, or paid us to develop uh, some sinus training products. Okay. And the reason he did that is because he just travels the world constantly doing ENT training and he has constant problems with cadavers. And for people that aren't in the healthcare sector, you don't appreciate the amount of problems that you have. You know, for example, in the Middle East, um, they import all their cadavers. They don't dissect their own bodies. And uh, probably 50% of surgical training courses are cancelled because the bodies just don't roll up. So the surgeons will pay for their, you know, a few thousand dollars and they'll fly in and all the equipment's all been flown in and then there's no cadavers. So everybody goes home. So, you know, there's just problems all around the world with surgical training, the limited ability to access uh, wet labs um, and the limit of pathology itself. A lot of medical device companies, you know, they want to demonstrate their products or teach surgeons how to use their products and it may be like a, a stent that they want to insert and by FDA law, they actually have to teach them how to do it on a cadaver. And of course, you know, the cadavers have all sorts of problems that are unexpected. So the salespeople have trouble demonstrating their product. So they're looking for an easier solution. So we can now manufacture parts for medical companies, say for an example, a heart, and uh, they can show a surgeon how to put a stent into that heart. And it's just a manufactured product rather than a real one, but it works effectively the same. Mm-hmm. So anyway, getting back to the story, Professor Wormel uh, commissioned us to manufacture these sinus training products because he's having problems teaching around the world. And when I say teaching, you know, every person has a different anatomy. Some are easy, some are complex. So if he has 20 people in a class, he never knows what he's going to get. So by manufacturing our products, we can control the learning curve. We can have an easy product and say a level one, a level two, a level three, right up to say level 20 with 20 different anatomies. And we can take the students or take the residents or take the surgeons through that whole learning curve. For example, medical students might be taught on levels one to six, residents on six to 12, advanced surgeons on 12 to 20, you know, where you're now removing tumors that are wrapped around a carotid artery or something like that. So it's all about continual rehearsal and being able to control the learning curve and to practice on things before you have to do the dissection in real life on a human. So Professor Wormel sent you off on a, you know, create this for me yep. mission. Yep. And what did you create? The Professor Wormel supplied us with a CT scan of uh, the human sinus and de-identified it for ethical reasons. And we then done the segmentation on it and uh, tried to manufacture it. And uh, we were very proud of our efforts and, it took about three months to do the first one, and I presented it to uh, Professor Wormel, and he replied to me, uh, Mark, if you're not going to get serious, you might as well forget about it. So, <laughs> so it was a little bit devastating at the time, but um, I thought, right, okay, now I need to double down. So we need to uh, you know, really learn a little bit more about this anatomy and how it works and what they're looking for. And, and um, So how did you miss the mark? Do you know... Uh, well, there's a couple, a couple of reasons, you know, we had a bit of, a little bit of bad luck where, where the agreement with Professor Wormer was he was going to inspect our, our progress daily 
uh, for the first three months. And, of course, he actually had an injury and ended up in surgery himself. So right. for three months he didn't get to see our product. And, right. and so he didn't get to oversee our daily progression. Uh, if that hadn't happened, we would have been uh, a bit more advanced. But anyway, after uh, Professor Wermore had recovered and we presented the product to him, you know, he started giving us advice. So when you look at a CT scan, it's, there really is a skill to be able to read a CT scan. You know, it's very hard to determine, you know, what's bone, what's muscle, what's fat, what's skin. You know, there's, there's a real art to it. And, you know, we've done the segmentation to the best that we could, but not understanding the anatomy and the, the nuances of anatomy and so, every- and you're not you're not working. You're working purely off of a CT scan. You're not working off. You know, here's someone's real life sinus. Um, well, it is actually somebody's real life CT but scan. You, but you don't have the physical sinus in in front no, of you. No, 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 no. So no, you're no. working purely off of a yeah, off of a two yeah. D image to be yeah. able to create and replicate something in three D. Yeah, black and white two D images. Yeah, okay. You know, it literally, it literally looks like an X ray, and we'll get say a thousand of them. Yeah. And what we have to do is we have to join the dots and join all thousand together to make a product. And, uh, and then you have to get it anatomically accurate. And That um, sounds incredibly complex. And no wonder he said, if you're not serious, come back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so you go away. You were told your product's not very good, Yeah. Uh, your first effort. What did you do next? Uh, you know, we had just had to knuckle down and refine it and refine it and refine it, you know, develop more materials and um, get the segmentation improvements and get more people on the team. Yeah. You know, we employed a medical doctor at that stage to help us do the read, the CTs and MRIs. And it took a further nine months before we finally got our first endorsement. Now, during that nine-month period, we were in surgery, and we still do it to this day. We go into surgery every single Tuesday afternoon. So we present more products. The surgeons do a dissection on them, and then they give us the feedback. And uh, then we go back and make the adjustments, see you next week, see you next week, see you next week. And this went on for a a further nine months, you know, right down to the point where the surgeons, uh, Professor Wim will say, make this 500 of a millimetre thicker, make this 2% softer or 2% harder. What? Oh, it was insane. You know, (laughs) those tolerances are unbelievable. yeah, Yeah. To get his endorsement, that's what we had to do. So, you know, a surgeon looking at your your product today, how real is it? You know, I have a biased on that answer, but, you know, we've sh- showed several surgeons and we show them the video of an actual dissection in real life. Yeah. Uh, for example... And um, I've seen that video. Yeah. I think yeah. you showed it to me when we met a few weeks ago. Yeah. I yeah. wouldn't mind putting that on our website too for right. people to have a look at. Right. Well, we've showed them, you know, the section in real life and uh, the surgeons themselves think it's actually a cadaver. You know, they don't know that it's actually not... Can't notice. They don't know it's not a, you know, a living person specimen. So That's amazing. You know, so they're pretty happy with the end result. So, um, you know, from that point... That stage, then uh, once we got the endorsement, it's right now, let's roll it out. And Professor said, Wormel said, we can't have one sinus product in a training course. We need a series of six. So yep. all of a sudden now we had to develop five more. And are these are these variations or these completely different parts of the sinus system that you... They're really all variations. So um, the first six were six different patients, all with different pathologies. Right. So, you know, one may have had a, what they call a conchobeloza, Another one has a deviated septum. Um, one has a, an agonase cell and a superagonase cell. Another one doesn't. So they all have slightly yeah. different anatomies. It's amazing how different human anatomy is. Hmm. So they, they were different, what we call surgical levels, you know, one through to six. And uh, we rank them in order of when they start training on yeah. number one and they get advanced, advanced, advanced. Yeah. So you go and create a whole bunch of new products? Yeah. For them? Yeah. So we finally got the endorsement for all six. And then they were sent to America. And I imagine the process for developing the other five yep. wasn't nearly as lengthy as the first one, which took about what, a year, roughly? Yeah, the, f- the first one took about a year. And um, we've got it down now to it takes about a month of product to develop. Wow. Yeah, yeah right. because, you know, we don't have to rewrite software or redevelop yeah. materials. It's about a month of product. Uh, that's with a sinus product. Of course, we've got other products yeah. now, you know, orthopedics, neuro, cardio, working on gyno as we speak. So we've got a whole range of products now. But uh, just looking backwards, after we developed the first six, uh, we launched our product and it was launched in McGill University in Canada. Mm-hmm. And um, so, why Canada? I mean, other than Canadians are cool, like Australians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's um, 
you know, we, we were taking the product to the market and sell it. We started marketing it. And what happened was it was a McGill University were umming and arguing over whether to use our product or not or yeah. take the risk. And there's always a fear of the unknown. So they, they actually decided against our product. Yeah. And they were going to go with cadavers. And, you know, about a week before the conference, they contacted me and said, Mark, we can't get the cadavers. Any chance you can get your products in a hurry? So, wow. Yeah. Which is exactly the same problem you'd seen before and you'd heard about before. Yeah, yes, exactly what happened. Mm. So, um, so they had to, they had no option but to take a leap of faith in our product. So we got a bit of luck there, you know, reality. And so what we did was uh, we were lucky we already had some in stock and we just packed them up and got them there. They literally got there, I think, the morning of the conference. Wow. You know, and Professor Wormel actually flew over there to do the surgical training on the very first one in Canada. Right. And, uh, and you know, just got rave reviews on the internet in the medical sector and then it just started rolling out. You know, the week later we were in New Orleans. A week after that I think we are in Dubai, then we are in Saudi Arabia, you know, you know, then we are in Greece and we are just zigzagging. I was zigzagging around the world <laughs> everywhere. I spent just prior to COVID because we only launched in November 2019. You know, it's just not that long ago. I think in three months, I, I literally probably spent three or four days back mm-hmm. in Adelaide. Every day was in a different city somewhere. It was crazy and exhausting too, I might add. I was significantly jet-lagged by the end of it, and I was almost grateful to come home. But, you know, it, it, uh, it came to a, a grinding halt when COVID hit. You know, we're certainly in vogue and people are using it for surgical training, but all of a sudden when COVID hit, who's doing training, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the military, really, where everybody trains, trains, trains. But when the when the war's on, mate, you go to the front line. So there's no training, right? No, there's no training. Everybody was in the front line then, mm-hmm. you know, fighting COVID. So yeah. uh, training ground to a halt. And that, in actual fact, it's a blessing in disguise for us. I mean, it's a horrible thing for the world, and I wouldn't wish it upon the world. Mm-hmm. But it gave me time to, you know, sit down, recoup, reevaluate, re-strategize. You know, what are we actually going to do here? Um, you know, our product is a success now. Let's develop more products. Um, let's get some investors on the board. You know, let's scale and um, uh, let's get a better strategy for rolling this out. I can't be flying around the world all the time. Nope. From that point of view, it was a blessing. And uh, But what we also did was um, because we started with sinus products, we, uh, what's the word for it, um, repurposed our products to be a COVID trainer. So we extended the science product and put what they call the nasal pharynx on it, right. which if you've seen the uh, videos where they do the swab training, they just put that swab so far Very in, in. Yep. and it goes all the way to the back of your nose, basically to the top of your throat, and it's called the nasal pharynx. Yeah. So we extended I, th- I think everybody listening's probably got that oh, strange no. feeling going on right now. Yeah, yep. I'm, I'm blessed. I haven't, I haven't had a COVID swab yet, and I'm counting my blessings. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to it. So anyway, we extended our uh, nasal trainer to the nasal pharynx and uh, we've been selling them around the world. Okay. And we've sort of been promoting it now that, um, you know, you can use it for nasal swabs, as many as you want, train as many people as you want, and then, you know, put it in your cupboard when you do your next, you know, surgical training course, get it out and use it for that as well. Yeah, exactly. So it's become a multi-purpose product now. So, you know, we sold some into uh, Nova Scotia last week and we've got another order today. So... Uh, people are still getting trained how to swap for COVID. So so that has been a, a bit of a blessing for us where we could reinvent our product or find another value, another use for it. But because of our uh, initial uh, market acceptance, and now we're finding that uh, a lot of the big medical device companies of the world, you know, these are multinational companies. I mean, they're the size of BHP, they're huge. Yeah. We're starting to get now commissions from them. So we've got several products being developed right now for uh, post-COVID, mm. which include, you know, multiple disciplines, you know, orthopedics and yep. uh, neuro and stuff like that. And that's because it ties into the training element of the tools that they're creating themselves to sell to customers. Is that how it fits? Yeah, from from the uh, big medical device companies, you know, they like to sell their products, whether it be endoscopes or, or whatever, a knee transplant. What happens is surgeons have to be trained how to use those products, yeah. trained how to put a hip transplant in or a knee transplant in, and they're always bringing out new variations of it, so they have to retrain and retrain and retrain. So it's much easier from their perspective to have six of our legs in the boot of their car because they can't have six real legs by law. Mm. So now how surgical training actually works is um, if you want to learn how to do a knee transplant, what they'll do is they'll probably get a surgeon from the RA, they'll put him in a taxi, take him to the airport, 
put them in an aeroplane, fly them to Sydney, put them in a wet lab, some surgeon will train him, then it'll fly all the way back. You know, it's, the cost of that isn't the problem from these big medical device companies. What the problem is, is getting the surgeon out of surgery for eight hours. 100%. And not just for one day. Yeah. Day there, the day back, the time that they're up there, the cost associated with that. That's yeah. a big, yeah. that's a big, big impact. So, you know, how our device helps solve that problem is now they can just put a leg in the boot of their car and drive it around and put it on the surgeon's desk. You know, it takes half an hour now rather than eight hours of his day. Yeah. And they're more likely to accept that training at that point. But um, that's just from a medical device company point of view. Mm. You know, from a surgeon's point of view, they have to continually train and they want to upskill. You know, they're all about saving lives. And there's a lot of surgical procedures that uh, are quite rare and quite complicated and high-risk surgical procedures. Now, what can they practice on? There really is nothing in the world. Uh, For example, if you have, um, uh, if you need it, if you have an aneurysm and you need an aneurysm clip, there's nothing in the world that they can train on. But we can now actually make a brain with blood flowing around the circle of Willis mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. surgeons can practice on that, putting aneurysm clips on. So they can practice their skills, they can rehearse, all without risk. There's no risk of bacteria, there's no risk to a patient. So that they can just keep advancing and improving their skills. So when they actually do it in real life, there's less risk to the patient. So the whole idea is a de-risk Every de-risk the system. So that's what we're looking at doing. It's amazing that this problem has existed for a long time and no one solved it yet until you came along. Uh, well, firstly, thank you. I, I think um, the problem has existed for a long time and um, it's been acknowledged for a long time in the healthcare sector, And uh, but they just haven't had the technology to solve this problem uh, until now. Mm. And really, uh, you know, like, like a lot of technology and businesses, it's, a, it's a, an accumulation of a wealth of knowledge. Uh, you, know, you know, we started with printing, then we evolved to this, then we evolved to that. And, you know, you know, material science has been developing and IT has been developing and all of these. What we've literally done is just pulled all these best technologies together. Like we bought the world's best materials and the world's best software and the world's best 3D printer. And we pulled it all together and then we started adding value to that and developing this range of products. And, uh, you know, it hasn't been easy. It's three years without pay. Mm. You know, three years I'm paying wages. Are you paying yourself yet? I am. I am. And it only started (laughs) recently, I might add. So it was a very difficult first three years. And that value of the death was, you know, quite brutal. And uh, like every good R&D project, you know, I massively underestimated the cost of it and the time. And I allowed one year and X amount of dollars. And of course, it was three years and three X, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was quite significant. And, uh, you know, we had to do a capital raise about a year ago. uh, And uh, I have to thank my shareholders very much for that. It wasn't for that we, you know, probably would have folded. Mm. And because that was before product to market. So, you know, we had to take a leap of faith in what we were undertaking and that we would reach the desired outcomes, but it didn't guarantee it. You know, you put everything on the line and if you don't take a risk, you know, you Mm. you probably don't get the rewards as such, but it was high risk, you know. If it failed, that's it. I'm on the dole for the rest of my life as such. You know, that's pretty scary. (laughs) But you must have, but along the way, you must have taken solace in that there were all these people telling you that there was this problem out there that needed to be solved and was it really an execution risk rather than a, a business model or a, or a lack of opportunity risk? Oh, I, I could always see the opportunity there and I always believed in the business model. It was more a risk of can we actually develop the technology? The execution risk, execution. Yeah. So whether we could develop to a realistic enough product that uh, it would be accepted by the yeah. market. And, you know, there really was a, a pretty big risk there. I mean, mm. when you've got the university saying to you, it can't be done, you know, they're smarter than I am, let's face it. So, you know, uh, I back myself, but sometimes naively and just get a bit of dumb luck, I think. So. <laughs> yeah. But we, we managed to pull it off and we still have our challenges ahead of us. You know, we're a, what I call an IP-centric company that's in perpetual R&D mode. I mean, our R&D will just never stop. Mm. But now that we're getting some runs on the board and we're getting accepted by the the healthcare sector, uh, we've also now got uh, several collaborations with different universities Mm. uh, where we're, you know, improving all of our science 
with the professors are all getting on board now. So uh, sort of been blessed with that. Mm. You know, I've actually got a grant or two now to help develop it. So uh, life's getting a little bit easier. And I imagine you're not taking your foot off the pedal, though. No, no. Look, we've really only just started. Mm. And I've, I've still got uh, a solid five years of hard work ahead of me. And, uh, you know, I remember back in uh, July 2018, we'd been going for a year, year and a half, and I was almost ready to pull the pin on the business. You know, I just couldn't get buy-in really from anybody. And I remember um, the Department of Trade ran a health life science mission in China. And I thought, right, this is the last pitch effort. I'm going to go over there with uh, Minister, uh, at the time, Minister of Trade, uh, Minister Ridgeway. Uh, went over there and uh, I was up on stage pitching five cities in five days and uh, I was overwhelmed by the response. I was standing up on stage and I was getting hit in the head with people flinging business cards at me. <laughs> it was just, you know, I went from one extreme to the other, you know, in Adelaide I just couldn't get any buy-in and over there I had thousands of people hit me in the heads with business cards. It yeah. was quite amazing. Yeah. I came back from that trip and I went, wow, you know, there really is a global market here. Mm. Uh it's just probably not in Adelaide. Hmm. Um, you know, Adelaide will absolutely pick up and run with this product, but it's a, a bit harder to sell here than overseas. Hmm. And I find that, uh, you know, even in the USA, I've been over there, and it's probably taking, taking the best part of a year for them to accept change and to, uh, you know, say, okay, let's go with your product. China, they wanted to go with it that day. And we are getting buy-in now by the universities, buy-in by the hospitals, buy-in by the government. Hmm. You know, we are... Uh, we're sort of getting a few runs on the board here. So, you know, the, the plan is to, um, you know, just keep developing at the moment and, uh, you know, keep funding R&D, keep designing new products and getting ready for post-COVID mm. and then, you know, try to start again and roll it out globally. Mm. Well, congratulations on everything that you and your team have achieved so far. Oh, thank you very I much, I have friend. no doubt there'll be lots of other things that you will achieve in the future as well. Well, we certainly hope so. We've got to... Quite a strategic plan laid out ahead of us. You know, we've got some some big ambitions. I think uh, there's an old saying, you know, what's the purpose of the stars if you don't strive for them? You know, so you know we've got a big market there that we're we're tackling, and you know we've got to have big ambitions and, and to achieve it. And if um, you know, I've got certain milestones now laid out for the next five years that I'd like to um, accomplish during uh, uh, my tenancy. Then uh, look forward to handing over to the the next generation. You know uh, we've got some great people on our team here. Uh, you know the you know the next the next evolution of adults. They're better educated. They're three inches taller. They're faster. They're leaner. They're, you know, um, I'd be a fool to think that uh, you know I'm better than them. I'm just older with a few more runs on the board, but. You know, you give them a few years out in the industry and then the school of hard knocks and, and they'll take over well, this company and take it to the next level. And we all, we all bring different things to the team, don't we? Yeah. Like you, bring, you bring a whole bunch of you know, innovation and experience. Yeah, yeah. And they bring a bunch of new ideas and that's why you've, uh, why you've got such a great team. So, well done. Thank you very much, Ben. It's been an absolute pleasure. Excellent. Thanks very much. Cheers. You've got to agree with me that you wish you had Mark's boldness to take on new ideas you come up with. But it's not something you're born with. You can hone this skill just like any other. I have some really, really cool photos and videos on my website about Fusetech, including how you can connect with them on social media. Head to theselfmadetheory.com forward slash podcast for more info. Until next time, keep innovating, overcoming and prospering. <laughs>